Coming up on episode 175 of Wheel Bearings, we're driving the 2020 and 2021 Lexus LS500 in F-Sport and standard flavors, the 2021 Kia Sorento Hybrid and Chevrolet Trailblazer. In the news, we talk about rumors of Apple getting into cars, and we finish up by answering a lot of your questions. That's all ahead on episode 175 of Wheel Bearings. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Did you know you can support Wheelbearings directly? Head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you. And exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be a part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. This is Wheelbearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. And I am Sam Abul Samad from Guidehouse Insights. This may be the last one of the year, guys. This may be the last episode of 2020. Um, not the last episode, just the last episode of 2020. Right. Not the last episode, <laughs> uh, especially not because, you know, we have some some Patreon supporters. Uh, we, we got a couple more over the uh, the the holiday. So, um, you know, that that seems to be going well. And thank you, everybody, for uh, supporting us. We are. We're we're up. Uh, it's it's been successful more beyond my uh, beyond my imagination in such a short time. So uh, I think Nathan and John are the two newest um, patrons, um, and I think everybody has also noticed that we've got some advertising running. Um, so yeah, we're 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 trying to make this actually like a business and make it work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it does. It funds the you know we pay for the domain and and some other you know we pay for hosting our, costs yeah, and hosting and transcripts and all those things. Um, so it's it's gonna make it a better show, um, especially as we really put our noses to it in 2021. But enough about that. Um, we have a short garage segment this week because. I'm still driving the same thing. Um, so who's who's going first? Rebecca, are you going first? Sure, I can go first. 
Okay. You had the Lex. You had a couple of Lexuses. They gave you. They, they emptied your garage into your their garage has into there, your driveway. Has there ever Lexi. been an official confirmation on on what is plural of Lexus? <laughs> I so with my rudimentary understanding of um, <laughs> Latin, dive right into a rat hole. <laughs> no, exactly. I just. <laughs> uh, Lexi would be a single Lexus, right? Where Lexus is, is plural. Really? I think so. <laughs> okay. Hmm. I, we'll somebody who knows more about Latin. Well, I'm not a linguist, so I, I don't yeah. know. Yes, but, but if we have one in our audience, we would love to hear from them. Yeah. Yes. That's an excellent audience comment. So we'll put that out on Twitter. So I did have, I had a pair of Lexus sedans. How's that? Nice. <laughs> Avoiding it altogether. Um, and, and this was actually by design. So Lexus wanted me to drive the, um, first I had the 2020 uh, Lexus LSF Sport all-wheel drive, which is the really cool charted up version Um of the Lexus large sedan. And this sedan is big. It weighs almost 5,000 pounds. It's a heavy, uh, you know, very kind of elegant design. Uh, and it had a lot of the bells and whistles, not all of them, but a lot of them. This one starts at about $85,000. Uh, and then you can chart it up to almost $90,000, which is what the one that I had. And the things that make it the different difference. So it's got a 3.5 liter uh, V6 engine in it, 10 speed uh, automatic, 416 horsepower. And as I said, this one was all wheel drive. This is a rear wheel drive based vehicle. Uh, but the one that I had was all wheel drive. And so I was really pretty psyched to get this because I, you know, I struggle a lot with Lexus. Sometimes they're the ride and handling just is not as emotional as I wanted it, as I want it to be. And, you know, this one is definitely engaging and fun. It's still just a little bit on the stodgy side. I didn't feel like I could throw it into the corners as much as I would want to. But again, it's a big sedan. Yeah, so, phys physics ultimately is going to take over. Yes, exactly. So, you know, but but overall, it was, you know, it's got some great um uh, upgraded brakes on it. Uh, you know, it's 20 inch tires. So it's got some good dynamics to it. It just, it, it's, uh, you know, it's quiet and does a lot of things really well um, on the road, but it's just not the most engaging that I would ever want. I also find it very um, switching into the different modes. So when you, if you're in the driver's seat, the, the switch that you toggle is in this really awkward position where it's on like the, like behind the steering wheel, kind of tucked up in the corner, almost like a third ear on this car. <laughs> and I always have to look for it. Cause I'm like, where is that thing? And I wish that they would just make that a little bit more ergonomically friendly. Cause it's very awkward. And then you have to kind of look and see which, you know, which gear, which uh, mode you're going into. So that's just like a ergonomics kind of issue that I have with, um, with when Lexus has this kind of setup to it, but you know, overall, I feel like the, the design, it was in 2018 that they redesigned it. I felt like it was, a it's, it's aging a little bit. There's a lot going on in the interior, although they've done a nice job of upgrading it. So there's a lot of leather. There's a real aluminum. Everything is very authentic. There's nothing cheap about the interior. There's a lot of top stitching, but there's it's it's almost like they're trying to embed the emotional design in the interior 
and I'd rather have a little bit stiffer suspension. I'd rather feel the road a little bit more. This is just for the F Sport. I'm not talking about the, because then I had the 2021 LS 500, just rear wheel drive. But if you're going to tell me that it's an F Sport, you're going to put these bigger brakes on it. You're going to give me a variable suspension. I want it to be a little bit more engaging than it's been and just a little bit stiffer, a little bit more revving. Uh, and just, you know, a little tighter steering. Like I kind of just wanted everything to be a little bit more than it turned out to be. Well, you know, I think one of the things that makes it feel a little less engaging is they've moved to that twin turbo V6 yes. instead of the the V8. And the the power delivery of it is is really good. That, you know, an engine has a really, you know, outstandingly flat torque curve and it's got plenty of power. But you miss that that sensation of the V8. You know, yeah, just but to, other just people have put it in, though. Yeah, I know. You I know? just, I, I, mean, it's, I find it's certainly that possible to, you know, to get that visceral excitement, you know, from a twin turbo V6. Um, Maybe you know, just to go, they to go along <laughs> with the 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 power generation. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, you know, and so that, and then the next week, then they delivered the 2021, and again, not F Sport, but just the the just the regular, like it's the exact same engine, but without the variable suspension, uh, without the, the bigger brakes, you know, and this was definitely less emotional really? <laughs> impossible. I mean, again, this was, now this was a very elegant sedan. It's incredibly quiet. It's very, very smooth you know that you're in an expensive vehicle. This thing started actually. So, so the one that I had started at 76,000, mine was tricked out to almost 90,000 and it can go up to $105,000, <laughs> which yeah. is impressive. For well, I mean, it's, it's an S-class competitor, right? Like yeah. it's, well, it is. You know, you know it, that's actually, you know, when you compare it to, you know, those top end, big luxury sedans like an S-Class or a 7 Series, that's that's actually pretty reasonable. And I remember uh, back in, what, 2008 or nine when the original LS600H hybrid version came out, mm. you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, that thing was like $115,000 back then. <laughs> so, you know, one hundred and five now is actually a yeah, pretty reasonable bad, right? value. <laughs> what a bargain. So um, one of the things I do wish, you know, like the Lexus safety system on this um, with enhanced radar, um, radar cruise control, lane change assist, front cross traffic and pedestrian alert. That's a $3,000 option. I feel like that should be included. That like should be standard, especially like, isn't that the same as Toyota Safety Sense Plus that they're putting right? on all of their cars? Um, and then there's a Well, wait a minute. What, what, what features did you say were in it, Rebecca? Enhanced all all speed dynamic radar cruise control and lane change assist, oh, no, and then so. front cross traffic alert and pedestrian alert. So yeah, really the only thing there the the front cross traffic alert and, and pedestrian alert, you know that's um, you know the cross traffic has probably got front corner. I think it's got front corner radar sensors. Right. Um, so that's that's the thing that's different. You know, like you said, Dan, the the um, the adaptive cruise control. Now this might be an enhanced version of adaptive cruise control. That's also using those front corner radar sensors to detect cut-ins and yeah. backing off. Yeah, if it detects for sure. somebody cut, trying to cut in in front of you. Right. So, but still three grand for that is a lot. And, and then they nickel and dime you with like 
$220 for windshield wiper de-icer, enhanced heater, and headlamp washers. Now, I get that, you know, not everyone lives in a place that where you're going to need a de-icer, but again, it just seems kind of nickel and diming me. I don't know. I just... I, Four hundred dollars here. Again, in the, in the there, segments, kind of annoying. <laughs> in, in the premium, the high end premium segments like that, nickel and diming is that's the way it's typically done. I mean, well, you, you look I, at a Mercedes or if like, Audi or BMW, they do the same kind of nonsense. I, and I, well, and it the, is nonsense. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, I, I was going to say. I think nonsense it. is accurate. Like <laughs> the the features, like heated deicer, like heated washer fluid, like that. It doesn't really help you unless you want to put more thermal stress on the windshield and crack it. Like, it's just, you know, they just seem like things to to have on the car as conversation pieces. You know, like a lot of it's not really, not really necessary. But, you know, I'm I'm not that premium large sedan luxury car buyer who goes to parties and wants to talk about the ridiculous features of my car. (laughs) Well, and I would imagine that, you know, to a typical buyer, they're not going to have to check those boxes. I would imagine that, you know, based on where you're located, the dealer is going to check this thing out for you. There's a lot of textures to the interior, just like there are to the exterior. And, and, And there's just a lot going on for me. I prefer a little bit cleaner sort of Volvo-esque kind of feel, but that's just personality. I mean, that's just a personal preference. Uh, But, you know, overall, it was, you know, it was a large luxury vehicle. That's what it does. So this one, actually, the 2021 uh, offers Android Auto. The 2020 does not. So that one, that is a significant uh, improvement with the overall awful and tune system. I also didn't love the gear shift. I felt like you know, I'm very picky about these things, so I'll stop bitching about it. Well, but. no, but what is their gear? <laughs> That's what we're have they, have they well, done like a, another reimagining of the the convention? No, no. It's just that you got to like I, I felt like I needed to, to look down every time to make sure that I was putting it in drive. You can shift it over from manual mode if you want to use the paddle shifters. But I just didn't I didn't love the feel of it. But again, I think that's a. a a personal preference from me that I just I'm not crazy. So, so some of the aerodynamics were the, the ergonomics rather were not my favorite in this, but it may not be something that bothers everybody. But it, yeah. it's stuff that bothers you. It bothers me. <laughs> well, look, you know, and that's the, why we're here. It, it has one of these electronic shifters that, uh, you know, it, it, it's an electronic switch. It's not a mechanical shifter. So it's not just right forward and back. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that, you know, we've seen variations on this, you know, in hybrid vehicles for for many years. And it it is, you know, not always obvious, you know, exactly where you're supposed to shift it because it, you know, it's a, it's it doesn't have a large range of range of motion, you know, and it always returns back to this center point. You know, yes. and a lot a lot of vehicles have the a lot of modern vehicles have this kind of shifter and it and that's actually one of the things I do like about the the rotary shifters, you know, is that at least it's clear, you know, exactly where you're supposed to be going because there is a more, you know, there there's only you can twist it. That's it. Right. You know? <laughs> and this thing, you can kind of you can go forward and back and side to side. And it it's it's less than obvious what is the right thing to do. And you do have to pay more attention when you're when you're putting it in gear. Right. 
But uh, I will say, so my brother Larry's visiting from California and he is six foot three and he fit in it really well, which was great because he doesn't fit in. He tried to get into, uh, I had a Mazda Miata as well, which we'll talk about next week, but he tried to get into that and that was not happening for him. (laughs) But, you know, this, I will say, I mean, we're sort of the two extremes, right? I'm five feet tall. He's six foot three and a big guy. And, you know, he fit in it really, really well. So that's definitely a positive. This would be a vehicle that, you know, would be great from he has uh, he's had he had a Chrysler 300 for years. And part of it was because he could fit in it well and comfortably and get in and out of it easily. Uh, so, you know, there, from that standpoint, and again, it's a big sedan. It's it's a definitely has a very luxurious feel to it. I will be interested when they consider doing a refresh on the exterior because I do think it's gotten a little bit tired. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would expect it in current fashion to pick up more lines and strakes and swoops. And... A bigger grill, if possible. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know. With I'm not sure that's is... possible. Yeah, I don't There's think only that's actually possible. small. Yeah. So those are, that's my garage. I did like having them back to back. You know, that was, I, I did like that. It was nice to have that, um, you know, the compare and contrast. You know, yeah. Especially when you've, when you've done, you know, when you've got a, you know, a, fairly mild mid-cycle refresh like that you know to to have them back to back like that you know you're more likely to notice the differences right exactly um all right so in terms of my garage i'm still driving the uh, f350 uh, and so there's no real stuff to discuss about that that we haven't already discussed other than i'm trying to get someone from ford uh powertrain uh to talk with us a little bit, do an interview about the development of that 7.3 liter V8 because it's interesting. So those probably after the first of the year, we'll have something for you. Your turn, Sam. Okay. So uh, I also had a couple of vehicles. The first one I only had for uh, 24 hours, you know, as part of uh, one of the things, you know, a number of automakers have been doing uh, in recent months is uh, virtual uh, drive programs for new vehicles and instead of instead of flying people out to a location which they some some are doing and you've done a couple of these Rebecca um, others are uh, just sending the vehicles out to people you know to do a 24-hour uh, or even a weekend loan in some cases you know for, to get a quick first impression uh, like we like we do um, and then you know once once everybody's had a turn it then turn around and you know, do the longer week-long loans. <clears throat> so I had the uh, Kia Sorento hybrid, the 21, 2021 Kia Sorento hybrid uh, for, for about 24 hours. And the, the Sorento has been redesigned this year. Uh, and, you know, the, it, Sorento is an interesting crossover because it's, it's, it's in that midsize class. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not as big as something like an Explorer or Toyota Highlander um you know the or or the telluride um but it's it's a fair bit larger than something like the the sportage or rav4 or escape uh and what's you know and there are other vehicles that are similar in size to this like the ford edge you know is a, is a comparable size to this or uh the toyota venza you know is also in that sim- similar size class to this but what's distinctive about the sorrento um in this class in this segment is that it's available as a three-row. Most of the others are only two-row utilities. And the first thing I will say 
is that you know that third row is really only for either for smaller kids or for short trips for adults or or I, that daughter's boyfriend that we were talking about the last time yeah and so <laughs> I, I actually did climb back into the third row and you know i was able to sit in there you know my head was not quite touching the headliner uh, but you know because of the size of this thing you know this the rear seat the third row seat is sitting on the floor so when you're sitting in there it's you know very much a knees up position um, so the second row seats are adjustable fore and aft, you know, so, uh, you know, at kind of the, the midpoint of the second row adjustment, you know, I was able to sit without my knees touching the, the second row seat, but it was not a comfortable position. It's not something you want to do on a regular basis, uh, at least for, you know, for an adult, um, you know, or, you know, somebody who's taller, uh, for kids, you know, not, not really a problem. Kids, kids could fit back there without any problem. Can you but, put a car seat or a booster seat I, back there or not really? I wonder. I'm not sure. I, I, I'd yeah. have to go back and check. I don't know if it has the latch system in the third row. I think it's right. only in the second row. Plus, Probably. I, don't, I don't think you really want to do that anyway, because <laughs> it, it, to reach back there would be very challenging. Mm. You know, it would be very awkward to try and get a smaller child into a car seat in that third row. So what is the point of it? Very, very much for occasional use. You know, okay. so, it, you know, if you, you know, let's there say, for example, it. it's there if you need it. Um, you know, and the the other thing is, you know, with that third row up, you've only got 12 and a half cubic feet of cargo space left behind it. Mm. So there's very little cargo space left. So it's not something you don't want to take six people or seven people on a, a long road trip in this thing. But, Ever. you know, if you're you know, pick, picking <laughs> up, you know, picking up kids to take them to soccer practice or something like that. Sure. You know, or to a party. That's fine. It's it's fine for that, you know, for just a quick, you know, crosstown trip. Um, so it's it is handy for that. When you fold the seats down, now you have like 38 cubic feet of cargo space. So it's actually great for that. So for a family of four or five for a road trip, this thing would actually be fantastic because you have a ton of of space for all the gear behind that second row. Um, and depending on, you know, what the position of the second row is, uh, you know, if you put, if you slide the second row seats forward, all the way forward, I think it goes up to about 45 cubic feet. Wow. And so, so, you know, if you slide them back, you know, I think it at, at all the way back with the se second row seats all the way back, it's, I think it's somewhere around 30 cubic feet. So there's a lot of cargo space in that, in that way, which is actually better than most of the other, mid-size uh, crossovers like this uh design say, oh, oh sorry go ahead, go ahead. you have uh, i i was going to the the exterior design of it is fabulous yeah you know it's and that's what i was going to get to next uh you know the last two generations of the sorrento you know when they went from the second to the third generation it was very much an evolution you know a very incremental change you know it kept a lot of the same kind of design language they softened it up a little bit this time it is a little bit more of a step away from what they had before um, with, you know, this new generation of the Kia, uh, what they call the tiger nose grill. Um, you know, so you still have those two tabs on the top and bottom in the middle. Um, but now instead of that being that grill being flush, it's like, it's like it is on the K five, uh, the replacement for the Optima where it's mm -hmm. a little more concave. So it's got a little more uh, texture to it. And, uh, a uh, little more contouring to it, you know, so it's a little more interesting to look at. Uh, but I think I think they've done a, a good job with it. Um, a couple of details I'm not 
crazy about, but it, you know, it's, it doesn't, you know, it's not a deal breaker. Um, you know, on the, the fenders, you know, there's no fake fender vents, but there are these two, uh, trim pieces at, you know, that cross between the front fender and the front doors, um, that depending on the trim you get, um, on some of the, the gas engine versions, you know, those are in black or like a dark gray color, um, on the hybrids, like the one I drove, uh, they're chrome. And so they stand out a lot more. Um, and similarly, um, the, uh, the chrome trim around the, the side glass behind the, the rear doors, just behind the rear doors, there's like a little kick up, you know, there's, there's, there's like a little reverse shark fin there behind the rear doors, which, you know, again, seems like kind of a pointless little flourish there. It doesn't really, I don't think it adds anything to it. It's not, it's not a deal breaker. Is it like a, a vortex generator or something just to keep uh, wind noise not, down? I'm not really sure what it's supposed to symbolize. Um, you know, I think, uh, again, on some of the, the trims on the gas engine, you know, that's, that's kind of dark gray or black. And so it doesn't, you know, it's not really noticeable. Um, on the hybrid, both hybrid trim levels, it's done in chrome. Uh, so it does stand out more, but you know, it's, it's a minor detail. It's, you know, not, you know, not going to stop. It wouldn't, it wouldn't stop me from buying it if I was interested in this vehicle. Yeah. Um, so, but so uh, you said you, you had the hybrid. Um, yeah. so they've, they've revised powertrains for all like the Sorento across the board, right? You can get the, they've got a new 2.5 liter turbo, um, eight speed dual clutch transmission which is interesting because it's a wet clutch which yeah so this like- is this is the the same transmission that's in the new you know the the 2021 version of the the hyundai veloster um n um and you know some of their other models and yeah so the the gas engines there's two two 2.5 liter four cylinders there's naturally aspirated version and then the turbo version yeah um what i and had you was, have the hybrid was the hybrid which is new this year so did you have the plug-in or just the regular? Just the regular. The plug-in won't be out until sometime in the summer. <clears throat> so okay. right now they're launching with the, the regular hybrid. The, so what the, engine's in the hybrid? So it's a 1.6 liter turbo. Oh, uh, with, 1. <laughs> um, with the little um, 1.6. With the same kind of setup that they've had in other Hyundai and Kia hybrid vehicles over the last 10 years, where it's using a six-speed six um, stepper, you know, conventional automatic transmission with the motor in between the electric motor in between the engine and the transmission, uh, 227 horsepower in this configuration. Uh, so it's the most powerful hybrid that, uh, Hyundai motor group has done yet. Uh, although we will be seeing more powerful ones. The, when the plug-in hybrid arrives, it will have a bigger motor and a bigger battery. It'll be 260 horsepower. Um, the hybrid is only available right now in front wheel drive, no all wheel drive version of with the hybrid. Um, the, the, um, the plug-in hybrid will have all wheel drive because uh, it'll why, actually have. Why is that? Um, it's not entirely clear. I think, you know, there's just a decision. Is there that like they an engineering made. reason for it or not? Really? No, no, okay. not really. Um, you know, I think it was just, they, they didn't, maybe didn't, they didn't feel that it was, that there was going to be enough demand for an all-wheel drive hybrid, which is interesting because all the other hybrid crossovers, the Escape, the Rav Four, the CRV, um, and the um, and even the the Venza are all have all-wheel drive available at least as an option. In some cases, right. like the Rav, it's it's actually standard. Um, so you know, the I think 
the the powertrain is really good. I really enjoyed driving it. I, so I took this thing out and drove it for several hours. Um, and you know, I think the way that Hyundai and Kia do their hybrid setup, I think it is a is a very good configuration. It feels it feels better than um, you know than a lot of the other hybrids because it's not a CVT. It feels yeah, it's really feels more satisfying natural. to drive. It's got a lot of nice. like, positive feel to yeah. the powertrain instead of that sort of slushiness. Right. So you never get any of that motor boating effect um, when you're <laughs> accelerating. Um, and it, it, I think, you know, it, it just feels really natural and, and it, it feels really smooth. They've done, they do a really good job of the control, the transitions between, you know, engine engaged and the engine off. Uh, you, you never really feel it happening. Uh, there's no jerkiness to it. Um, you know, I, I averaged, uh, I think what, uh, about 30, almost 38 miles per gallon with it, which is right around the wow. EPA, <clears throat> um, uh, combined fuel economy rating. And, you know, this was on a relatively cold day, some snow on the ground, um, you know, cold, wet pavement. Um, one of the one of the interesting things about the, the hybrid 17 um, inch wheels instead of much larger wheels. So there's a little more compliance there from that extra sidewall that you get, uh, which, you know, I, I appreciated, you know, especially on some of the roads around here. Um, one one thing I did notice is that um, hard acceleration on cold, wet pavement. I did manage to get some wheel hop. <laughs> um, which was I mean, quite substantial wheel hop. Uh, but most people aren't going to be driving it that way most of the time. So, uh, so, you know, overall, you know, the interior, you know, the new interior is, you know, feels more premium. You know, this, the one I had had some nice aluminum trim across the dashboard, uh, you know, very nice screen in there, um, updated version of the, the infotainment system, uh, wireless support for wireless Android auto and Apple CarPlay, which is something, uh, most of the all of the recent vehicles I've had over the past month month and a half or so have had wireless support for both Android Auto and CarPlay, which is it turns out to actually be, if you as long as they also include a wireless charging pad and you have a phone that yeah. supports that I think and that fits yeah and that you know that uh, <laughs> that works really well because uh, you know I can get in <clears throat> put my phone down on the on the pad and not have to futz around with the cable I don't have a cable dangling around uh, so that. That works. That that all works really well. Um, you know, so I I I I like this thing a lot. I, you know, I thought it was really good, um, and I'm really looking forward to trying the plug-in hybrid version, which is supposed to have 30 miles of electric driving range when it when it arrives uh, later in, later in 2020 or 2021. Um, the the hybrids, the regular hybrids, are available now. They should be in dealers right about now, as as we're recording this. Um, and uh, I th I think it's going to be a, another success for Kia. You know, the Sorento is one of their top selling models. Um, one of the interesting things, you know, one, one of the reasons they explained, that Kia explained for why it's offered as a three row, uh, you know, when you have the, the Telluride, you know, which is larger, you know, it's a more useful three row. The, the Telluride is only for North America and Middle East. It's not offered in Europe or China or, or even Korea. Uh, it's only for the North America and the Middle East. Whereas Suckers. the the Sorento is a global <laughs> model, and so they they wanted to offer um, you know a a global three row. You know it's it's the it's the right size that's more appealing in most other markets as opposed to the Sorento or the Telluride being considerably larger. And you know pricing starts at uh, about thirty three thousand uh, for the S trim, uh, and then the EX or the the Yes. Yes. Um, trim, uh, which I had, you know, including delivery and 
Um, and the cup, just I think the paint was the only option on there. I had the uh, the optional runaway runway red paint. Um, you know, came out to thirty two thirty eight thousand two hundred and five. Uh, for uh, for that, so you know, it's, I think it's 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 quite a good value for what you're getting, and you're, you're getting a lot in there. You know, it's got um, it's got the you know all the um, driver assist features, lane keeping assist, and blind spot monitoring with cross traffic alert. Doesn't have front cross traffic alert like that Lexus, but you're also not paying an extra <laughs> three grand for that. Exactly. Um, but it does have the rear cross traffic alert um, and adaptive cruise control and and all the other goodies in there. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, it, it's quite, you know, it's quite a nice vehicle. If you're looking for something, you know, something like the Telluride is a little bit too big for your needs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you want something that, you know, especially as a, as a five seater, um, four or five seater, you can get it with center captain's chairs, which, uh, the one I had, uh, had, um, it works, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's a very comfortable vehicle. Um, one, one note, it, it did have a little more uh, road noise coming through than I expected, especially on a hybrid. Usually the hybrids, uh, hybrid models typically have a little more um, uh, sound deadening in there or some active noise control to, to keep that down. But it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't so bad that, again, you know, it wouldn't be a deal breaker. But, you know, it's just some, something to, to note, you know, if it's something that, it, that annoys you, you know, you may want to look elsewhere. Uh, but it's definitely worth taking a look at. So that's the first take on the Sorento hybrid. Yeah, it's it's um, Kia has and and Hyundai they've really studied the market. You know they offer a really wide array of choices, and their styling and premium feel like they just it's an impressive thing to watch how they've moved in in five mm. years. And this thing just looks great. I love the their offering it in green in X line. So there's like a butch, you know, butched up trim. And um, the back kind of reminds me of the old SN95 Mustang. Yeah. Oh, I was <laughs> the, thinking the, it, it reminded me of the Telluride, but sure. Mustang yeah, no, I can see the Telluride in it, but just the <laughs> shape, look at the shape uh, of the taillights. The telluride, but yeah, you're right, Dan. I think there, there's a little bit of the, uh, the SN95 in there as well. It just looks like the SN95, like the trunk lid and taillights of the SN95 notchback. Mustang. I don't know. Awesome. I I think it's super handsome and I love that green as well. I just, I think it's a really handsome vehicle and it does evoke that, that very muscular look of the Telluride and the vertical headlamps or or rear tail lamps rather look great. I just, I think they've done a really nice job because a lot of these, this size vehicle can look um, very, very nondescript. And, you know, kind of especially to the uh, to a general consumer, everything sort of blends. They can't tell a RAV4 from a CRV. But I feel like this is I think that this could be a very distinctive vehicle uh, for for Kia. I I think it's great looking. Yeah, no, they're they're killing it in terms of just design and style and the the stuff that leaves a a good impression. It's just it's just beautifully done. And for the money, uh, it feels looks and feels a little bit more premium than, than, uh, some of the other stuff in the class. It's, it's a tough class too. There's, there's some nice stuff in there, but, um, they, they've keeping the Sorento fresh. They're not letting it rest. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's keeping it to like four year product cycles, you know, so they're, um, they're, they're, they're updating it on a pretty regular basis and, uh, that's, that's, that's good. You know, they're not letting it get stale. Um, so the, 
the other uh, vehicle I had for the remainder of that week um, after they took back the Sorrento was the Chevy Trailblazer. Um, the the Trailblazer got you know kind of a quiet debut uh, last November at the LA Auto Show. Um, you know, just kind of you know slipped out there. It wasn't wasn't a, a big deal. Um, and uh, you know, this is another you know smaller compact crossover, um, but it's bigger than the existing tracks. Um, smaller than the Equinox, you know, kind of slots in between those two. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, this shares, a, it, I, I know it shares a lot of its underpinnings with the, the Buick Encore GX that Rebecca drove a, a while back, uh, which is also a little bit bigger than the original Encore. Um, and, you know, cause it shares the same powertrains with the, with the Encore GX and, uh, uh, it, uh, it's uh, I, I like the design of this thing in particular. I, I really like the way that the Trailblazer looks. You know, it's got uh, you know this kind of chunkier, you know, little little sportier off road. You know, more a little bit more aggressive look to it. Um, you know, I think it's got better proportions than the tracks. You know, the tracks looks you know a little frumpy. Um, you know, I think I, I think you know this is it's Aww. a fun it's a fun design. My, my, I have to say, my brother is borrowing my Encore because his car is in the shop and he pulls up. He goes, it's a potato. It's <laughs> <laughs> a potato. I guess, but it's a cute potato that yeah. is not in the shop. Thank you very much. Um, right. But yeah, no, I think the, the proportions on the Trailblazer are, are better. But that's why I was laughing. I remember his it's, comment. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a potato. Is it? You can walk. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's a good looking vehicle. Um, you know, as I said, it's a little bit bigger than the tracks, um, you know, compared to the last vehicle that carried the trailblazer name, this is a lot smaller, you know, the last well, it's one. It's totally different. Yeah. It's a complete, I mean, you know, it's been more than a decade since the, the GMT 360 trailblazer went away. Right. Uh, and the defining and, features of those cars were that they would just like pieces would fall off and they would break and they would just <laughs> yeah. rust bucket. I had a blazer. I had good luck with oh, mine. The, the, the trailblazer or the, I had the blazer. regular blazer. Okay. Well, because yeah. the trailblazer was too big, right? Yeah. Because that's, I mean, that's what uh, can be potentially confusing to a consumer is that in fact this trailblazer is smaller than yeah. the blazer whereas yeah. in previous like it was times, the other it, way around the, right. the trailblazer was bigger than the blazer right so you I, know, I, think- I love i love this the trailblazer though. so it's so cheery looking and friendly and this one or yeah yeah, yeah, no, this this yeah. one. I hated the GMT 360s. Hated. Yeah, <laughs> they were they were terrible vehicles. Um. But, uh, but no, this one this one is it, it is you know it's fun looking um, you know and I think it's a really good size you know as especially you know if, if you're going to be using it you know as a commuter vehicle you know an urban vehicle it's you know reasonably sized for parking and you know fitting through traffic and things like that. Um, I love the two tone. Yeah. On it too. I love yeah, that. And, and I, that. This is a trend I really, uh, you know, I'm all for, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, having the contrasting roof colors, um, you know, gives We're it a little nerds. gives them a little more character. <laughs> uh, so there's only, the only interiors are jet black or jet black. Uh, <laughs> jet black with a little bit of. Sounds like GM. Yeah. Or is that, is that, am I no. just, is it just the, the color that I chose? My well, mine mine was like black with brown accents. Yeah, there's so there's jet black with almond butter, yeah, and I then that's there's what I had. jet black with Arizona accents, which is only 
I mean, it's basically, but you're basically getting a black interior. <laughs> Granted, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the vehicles, they have limited interior color options. And I think, I think that's because, you know, probably most people select the darker interiors, you know, they're easier to keep clean, you know, un- unlike, you know, white leather Tesla interior, you know, that you, <laughs> after you've sat on the seat for a couple of times, a couple of times wearing blue jeans, you know, there's it's permanent blue stains blue on seats. it. Yeah. Know. It can be a little oppressive. You know, yeah. if you don't have something to, to set it off, you know, I think the, the brown accents in this one, I think, you know, definitely help. That's um, true. You know, it helps break that up a little bit so it doesn't feel quite so imposing when you're sitting in there. Right. Like um, I'm dour enough. I don't need the interior yeah. of my car to like, how, to, don't try to help. Well, no, I like, I like to have, I like to have a, a lighter option because I don't like really hot interiors. So like even, you know, when you're in, in much sunnier climates so i'm not talking about the 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 white but although i have had white interiors but i like even the caramel seat color that's like in in coco um you know in my own buick encore i like having that option it's a nice interior though i don't mean to get you off track now that i'm looking at bigger pictures of it and stuff (laughs) the jet black with the almond butter is is quite nice actually (laughs) no what i like is that it it starts like right at 20 grand yeah it's pretty affordable it's amazing. Yeah. You know, I mean, the the one I drove was the the active all wheel drive trim level, uh, which is somewhat less affordable. Uh, you know, it, it came. Let's see. Uh, where is it here? It was bottom line. Thirty one thousand two twenty five. Oh, hey, terrible. Delivery. I'm sorry. The LT actually does have multiple options. I oh, was I was just looking at active and that okay. only does have two interior. The RS only has one. Yeah. So I apologize. I take it all back. Okay. Variations <laughs> cost money. So uh, yeah. So the the you know the active that I drove you know which is one of the top two trim levels along with the RS was thirty one thousand two twenty five. Um, you know it starts at twenty seven thousand for the active uh, all wheel drive and you know this one had a fair number of options including the technology package, which adds um, wireless uh, CarPlay and Android Auto and mm. the upgraded uh, infotainment, uh, latest generation infotainment, adaptive cruise control, um, LED headlamps, HD radio, et cetera, et cetera, a bunch of other stuff. Um, and this, um, uh, you know, th- that, you know, that's uh, some of that stuff you can, you can go without, you know, I think, um, you can certainly live without some of those things. I do. I, as I said earlier with the Sorento, I definitely like the, having the and wireless Android auto that, uh, you know, that's an, a nice touch. There's two powertrains available in the trailblazer. The base is a 1.2 liter, three cylinder turbo, uh, with a CVT. And then, uh, if you get all wheel drive, uh, then you get a 1.3 liter turbo with a nine speed automatic, uh, which I think, you know, haven't driven the one, two, um, but the, the one three with the all wheel drive, uh, I think, you know, is, is a very nice combination. It's got more than adequate power. Um, it's, uh, what is it? It's 155 horsepower. Uh, I think I it just cracks me up that they split hairs that closely, like a 10th of a liter is going to, why didn't they just turn the boost pressure up? <laughs> eh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you could, I, you could do that. I mean, there, there's, there's other other reasons, um, you know, that they have, you know, it, it may be that running the smaller engine at higher boost, um, you know, you sacrifice too much fuel economy and you, you're not, you're not going to get it where you need to be for, for your budget. Um, you know, running a slightly lower load 
you know, with the, the larger displacement uh, might work out better. But yeah, 155 horsepower, 174 pounds feet of torque with the one three. Um, That's really good is, for for yeah, it's there, it's you know, it's very good. Yeah, you know, and for the, for this size of vehicle, I think it's a, it's a really nice combination. Rebecca, when you had the Encore GX, which engine did you have in it? Oh, I'll have to look it up. Okay, did I, you I have all wheel drive? I did. Okay, so it would have been the same one, the one three. Then I think I, I think I think all wheel drive uh, only the one three is available. The one two is uh, with front wheel drive. Okay. So it was a peppy little thing though. I mean, yeah. I, I, I admit I liked it better than Coco, even though I own Coco. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I liked having a little bit more room. Yeah. It's a 1.3 liter four cylinder. And then the 1.2 liters also available. Right. So mine had 155 horsepower. Uh, I'm, I'm curious when you drove the Encore GX, um, what, what was the, the, the noise level like? You know, I I actually thought it was pretty good. I I mean, I wrote in my review that the the road noise was pretty minimal, so I didn't think it was bad. Okay, there was definitely it definitely seemed like there was quite a bit of noise coming into the Trailblazer. But which, Buick is going to have that quiet tuning thing exactly, going yeah. on. So you know, as a Chevy, um, you know, especially, and uh, you know, I don't know if you know maybe some of the other trim levels might be a little quieter. You know, if Certainly, I think you know one of the big. It was more. It was more so really the engine than uh, road noise. I mean, there's some road noise, but you know the engine seemed quite loud in this one, and that may have been a deliberate choice, you know, for the active and and maybe the RS trim levels uh, to to make it feel a little louder, a little you know, a little sportier. Uh, you know, and I I do I do like the sound of you know three cylinder turbos. You know, they've got a they've got a distinct sound to them that. Um, you know, that a force that's different from a four cylinder, you know, it's kind of, kind of got this little growl to it. Yeah. Um, and you know, you see that, you know, and everything that's got a three cylinder turbo, like, you know, modern minis and, you know, the, the Fords, the Fiestas and Escort or focuses that had them had that one liter, you know, it's, it's kind of a fun sound to it. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't mind it, but it is, you know, again, like with the Sorento, you know, you'll want to test drive this before you buy and make sure that it's something that, that you can live with. Um, and again, I, I don't know if some of, you know, like the LT might be a little bit quieter, um, but uh, it's it's definitely something to take note of. So um, apparently I did. I'm sorry. I did have the front wheel drive. I had the front wheel drive with a 1.3 liter four cylinder turbo. Okay. So yeah, I think, I think you can get the one three with front wheel drive um, as well as an option. The all wheel okay. drives get the one three as standard. Well, uh, you know, that's okay. the 1.3 in the front wheel drive. That's the one you take drag racing. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, did, did yours, um, one of the things I really liked about it was that there's a lot of flexibility on the interior as far as the seats, like the, the front seat goes all the way down like I could actually the, the the passenger seat in the front. I actually had this big long tr plant tree that I bought, and at first I didn't think it was going to fit, but because it's it's almost seven feet tall, but it actually did because we were able to put the passenger seat front all the way down, like almost vertical. It was it was impressive. Um, I didn't try that, but I did. <laughs> uh, I did actually take the Trailblazer to go pick up a couple of uh, bookcases that my wife found on on Craigslist. Okay. Um, that you know were pretty good size. They're what thirty five inches wide by about uh, forty four inches tall, uh, wow. and about yeah. twelve inches deep. 
uh, you know, and I went over uh, to pick those up and I managed to put both of those inside with the back seat folded down. I put, you know, stacked them up and got both of them inside, you know, so there's yeah. actually a lot of cargo space in there, both with the seat up and with the seat down. Uh, so, you know, it is it is surprisingly roomy for something that, you know, looks fairly compact on the outside. Right. Uh, let's see what they show. Yeah. So 20, 25.3 cubic feet with behind the rear seat and with the rear seat folded down, you get 54 cubic feet. So it's see, that's it, pretty good. Yeah. So in a, in a sedan in this footprint, you'd have like a 13 cubic foot. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. Which yeah. is, you know, which is why, you know, in smaller vehicles, I always prefer a hatchback, you know, given that hatchbacks are, you know, like sedans are largely disappearing. Um, you know, this is the next best option. You know, ha having that big opening in the back and being able to fold that down and, and use all of that volume, uh, I think is is a is a huge benefit, you know, especially you know to give you flexibility when you need to carry stuff. So I, I liked I like this thing a lot. Um, you know, it's it's a it's fun to drive. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice size. I like the size of it. Um, and you know, wasn't the most fuel efficient vehicle, you know, of this size class I've driven, I, I got about 26 miles per gallon, but I was driving it fairly briskly. I think, um, EPA ratings about 28, uh, or 20, 27 combined. Yeah, mine's, mine was 30 with that engine, 32, uh, 31 combined. And okay. I, I definitely got more like 27 ish. Yeah. 28. Yeah. So, you know, it, again, you know, not not the not the greatest. Yeah. So the yeah. So the Trailblazer is rated, you know, the one three front wheel drive is rated at twenty nine combined or twenty nine city. Um, the one the all wheel drive is twenty six city. I got about twenty six combined. OK. Um, so it's a couple of miles per gallon shy of the EPA rating. But but, you know, it's not bad. Um, you know, so, you know, if you're looking for something, you know, on the compact size, it's got a fun look to it and, you know, quite nice interior. Um, you know, this is, this is definitely a, a good choice, I think. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's let's talk about some Apple stuff. Yeah, okay. I think we, we can need talk, talk about a, Apple a little bit. Briefly about Apple stuff. Okay. There's chatter again about Apple developing its own car. Um, and there's been that ridiculous fake video 
making the social rounds. I don't know if you've seen it with the ball, the wheels that look like track balls and it's, it's actually yeah. Mercedes. Um, so, you know, brand fans, they're, they're losing their minds. Um, I'm kind of scratching my head. I'm sure you two are as well because the details are, um, they're pretty thin yeah. about Apple working on a, on a car. I mean, they've been working on a car or in, on some automotive project called project Titan for quite a while now, almost six years now. That's really about all we know, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, we this first came up in February 2015, so we're just shy of six years. And at the time, you know, back in 2015, I wrote a series of articles on my blog, which I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes, <clears throat> explaining why I didn't think that Apple would ever actually pull the trigger on putting this into production, or if they did, you know, what approach they would take, which my my take on it is that they will never actually sell this to consumers it will be available only by subscription or perhaps as a robo taxi service well that's interesting and you know since you know since 2015 we really haven't gotten much additional detail there's been <clears throat> stories that pop up every once in a while about apple kind of restructuring the program and moving away from designing a complete vehicle and focusing just on an automated driving system and you know, we do know that Apple has been working on an automated driving system. They have permits uh, in California for testing, for road testing. And we've seen a bunch of photos. You know, they've got a fleet of about 50 Lexus RXs equipped with various iterations of their, their automated driving system. Um, and there's been photos that have popped up, you know, periodically of those vehicles. And, you know, they Apple publishes or you know, they submit their their disengagement reports to the California DMV, like every other company testing this stuff, except for Tesla uh, does. And, um, you know, the, the, the speculation more recently has been that they were going to focus on that and, you know, license that to other companies to install on their vehicles. Um, you know, but the, you know, the truth is we don't really know anything specific about what their production plans are. Rebecca, have you got any thoughts? I think we can all agree that they're definitely working on something as and it's almost their responsibility to work on something as a corporation, as a technology company. Uh, you know, Apple has I mean, they, they've you know, they've got all these tentacles are always working on secret projects. They're always working on stuff. I, you know, I think that people are overly excited about the idea that they're suddenly going to drop a car on the market like they did like the iPod years ago. You know, when they were developing those um, things like the iPod, that was a very, very different time. Social media was not really around. The, the rumor mill was much more kind of word of mouth, if you will. So the idea that they're suddenly going to come out with a vehicle, I just think is highly, highly unlikely. I would like to see them because I think that companies like Apple push traditional manufacturers to maybe stretch their own uh, their own technology, their own creativity, uh, maybe accelerate timelines. Uh, so I, I like the idea. It's, it's similar to why I think it's a good idea that somebody like Elon Musk and Tesla's in the industry because they push those boundaries and they force the com for, force legacy companies out of their timelines and their comfort zones. I think that the market is insane to think that this car is going to come out <laughs> in the next couple of years because 
there's a lot that goes in, you know, a car is far more complex than an iPod or even um, whatever iPhone they're up to iPhone 12 or whatever. So I think that this is something that we are going to have a lot more concrete examples of production than we would of almost any other Apple product that, that, because it just doesn't require as much, um, you know, what they build now doesn't require as much infrastructure and hardware and factories and things like that. So, I mean, I think what's catnip to everybody in the the rumor mill is that uh, Apple is famously secretive. So if anybody can do a project like this and keep it under wraps, it's them. Um, and, and so that's, that's driving some of the conjecture. And and I think it's, you know, Apple working on automotive projects isn't new, uh, you know, like, like we were just talking about and the, the company does know they bring value to that space. They know a few things about UX, about software operating systems, um, stuff they could be really valuable as a supplier with, uh, to the automotive industry. So I I think, um, if, even if they do decide to build an Apple branded car, they're they're smarter than Tesla. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> they they'll use a contract manufacturer or a partner with an automaker. You know, Foxconn builds right. well, the, and that's, the iPhones. That's what Apple so. does for everything they build. They yeah. don't they don't own any factories. Right. They understand manufacturing right. at scale, even for a car that's like it's 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 pretty different. But it's not the the sort of general practices. I think are pretty portable from from building phones to building cars to building you know whatever else it is it's obviously it's more complicated with a car there's just a lot more parts there's a lot of regulatory uh hurdles Mm. to jump through and things but if they were to partner up with someone like like magna um to to actually build it you know they'd they'd be in good hands and they're clearly a consumer favorite you know like uh smartly diversifying their lines of business can help fill in those those revenue troughs if people decide they don't want to be buying the iphone 13 or 14 or whatever um you know, for a thousand bucks every three years, uh, being in the automotive sector isn't necessarily bad, at least from a sort of surfacey surface level. They are inside. consumer favorite, but it doesn't mean they're successful. I mean, Apple TV is still sort of limping along the smart speaker. Yeah. You know, they've gone into some of these arenas that you know, on paper they should have succeeded, but for yeah. whatever reason, they did not. I do like that with the fact that they've got such enormous uh, market cap, they're trying and failing. I like to see yes. the failures. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, um, the, the interesting thing about Apple, you know, compared to, you know, say Tesla or Google is, you know, Apple is a very disciplined company. You know, they they try a lot of stuff, but they don't talk about any of that stuff until they are ready to put it on the market. You know, so, you know, they they are they are not notorious for working on all kinds of different things, oftentimes from years on end and then deciding, no, this isn't going to work. You know, we're just not going to do it. And they, they never talk about it. Well, it's yeah. that, it's that culture that grew out of, you know, where Apple grew out of in the first place. Is that sort of like Xerox park kind of culture where it's just, it's R and D for R and D. And if it doesn't actually lead to a marketable product in the short term, it's still worth doing. 
Yeah, um, and but, so they, but they yeah, it's, it's, it. it's R&D yeah. in the lab as opposed to Tesla that they just throw shit out there at their customers <laughs> and hope for the best. <laughs> hey, yeah. everybody, you're beta testers. Yeah. Um, so and that's that's something that Apple doesn't do. Yeah, uh, they, they they have other customer hostile practices. So. I, I'm not saying they're not customer hostile sometimes, you know, uh, but um, but, you know, at least the for, you know, whatever the the rationale they have for the decisions they make the it's usually pretty well developed by the time it gets to market it's usually most of the time it's not half baked you know the apple watch was an exception it was kind of half baked when they first launched it but they've evolved it pretty rapidly over time and it's it's gotten really good yeah, I've, and the people who have them like them you know yeah. i think that's that's the thing and that and then apple is sort of one of the few brands that is as strong as Tesla from an affinity standpoint. So they, they could immediately come out and, and be a, a leader in awareness and, uh, and, and, and just popularity, you know, uh, they'll be the next hot thing if they, they Absolutely. drop a car in the market. Absolutely. Um, they, they definitely would. I mean, we would be, I would be all over driving that thing. Just, I'd be just very interested. Experience. In sure, I'm, I'm sure I'd have a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, what about, the idea that, you know, if Apple decided to uh, go into automotive supply, uh, you know, to, to say, OK, Mercedes, you want to you want to put Apple UI in your Maybach? Let's talk. Um, you know, they need to know if they decided to see what it would take to develop a car from scratch. Uh, so they know they they understand those those automotive customers. Right. Like one one. If if you're going to sell stuff to automakers, you need to know what automakers go through, right? So they can you can understand their challenges, you can speak their language, uh, and and maybe that's and something. They, that and they've doing dipped their toe into that with CarPlay over the last six years. Yeah, <laughs> and know. so maybe that's like why you know if they're if they're developing a car to see how difficult it is, so that they understand all those those areas that those potential customers are going to have challenges and, and be able to have a solution for them. You know, cause that's one of the things you do when you're developing a business is you, you try to really get into the heads of your customers and, and have those solutions ready for them. Um, that can look a lot like developing a marketable product, I suppose. Yeah. Now I do think it would be interesting though, if they start targeting the commercial space here, hmm. you know, like, tying it in like with Amazon or something and doing a, a commercial van, which we've talked about in the past could be really appealing and tying in some of their big corporate companies. That could be a different area that they go after as well. But yeah. that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that, that, I mean, that's not a very Apple like thing to do. Apple likes to do consumer products. They're, you know, they don't do servers. They don't do. They did. Know, they they did they all did. those things once upon a time and yeah. then they abandoned them. Yeah. <laughs> and all those pro users, they're just like, yeah, we're not. Dead. Yeah, Any, I mean, anybody have a trash can Mac Pro? Yeah, they're, um. they're they're much more. They're generally much more focused on you know mainstream consumers. Uh, although you know the the more premium end of the mainstream consumer market, you know they don't go for the low end, which is why you know one, that's part of why I don't think that you'll ever be able to buy an Apple car because, you know, they're certainly not going to sell, you know, a $30,000 Apple car. I don't think you can um, get the whole bundle, right. For like $400 a month, you get the well, car, it, that, the Apple TV, that, the Apple music. Aren't they talking or, about doing something like 
uh, like an Uber, like, are you talking about like, them putting out like an Uber, like well, where that's, you can't that's own what, it? Yeah, that's, that's what I think. You know, it'll be either some sort of subscription where you have access to the vehicle uh, where and they retain ownership and control of the vehicle or uh, a robo taxi service, <clears throat> because, um, you know, for one of the things, you know, Apple, among all the other things we've talked about, Apple's also a company that only gets into businesses where they can make very high profit margins. Yeah, you know, they, are they, they going to be like, able to do that though? If the they car... do thirty-five to forty percent profit margins, right? Uh, you know, yeah. for everything automotive is what like three to four, <laughs> right? You know, and and well, and in ride hailing, you know, it's negative. Nobody's ever been profitable yeah. in ride hailing, <laughs> which which makes it even more challenging. But you know, if they if they focused on only the high end of that market, you know, they could you know, and and rather than trying to be Uber and go everywhere. You know, if they focused on specific markets where they can, um, you know, where they can offer that offer a premium ride hailing service at a high enough price point, they could potentially get the kind of margins that they're looking for. Uh, you know, and also that way, you know, they they avoid the challenges of you know a dealer network or you know figuring out how they're going to sell these things. You know, all, all the problems that Tesla has had and, and that, you know, some of the other upstart EV companies are, are going to face, you know, they avoid all of that stuff by just going straight to the services market. And, you know, if you look at Apple over the last several years, they have, you know, as the market for their existing products has gotten saturated, you know, for the hardware side of it, they have focused more and more on building the services business, you know, whether it's Apple Music or Apple TV Plus or now Fitness Plus and all these other things that they're selling you know, they are really much more focused on the services side where they can get more growth than what they what they're able to achieve now on the hardware side. And that's growth is what, you know, that's that's the number. That's the thing that triggers the the financial markets and say, oh, yeah, it's a growth company. Let's throw all our money oh. at their stock. But how know, are cars a growth company? <laughs> car, selling cars is not a growth market. Exactly. But, but producing them. But the services side, if you're offering a premium mobility service that could be a growth market potentially i don't know i think that developing an automobile together with trying to do um automated driving like the car itself is going to be a land war in asia kind of situation where they're just <laughs> no. I'm so, like, in a land war in asia <laughs> exactly like fine go for it but you know I, I think that together with self-driving like it's just a terrible idea the competition yeah. in the field, like even if they decide to challenge Tesla, that's such a tiny slice of the market. And it, it's not enough just to develop a car. Apple has to develop, you know, they have to break some ground and not just in style and features and interface or experience, but all of those. You know, it's going to be expected to have great self-driving. And I, I mean, I don't care how good their AI is if they it, it, it just... I don't, I don't know. It, it just seems like the AI is going to get to 99.5% and that last 0.5 is never going to happen. That's the part and, that kills people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think that they're just, they're probably behind on their own efforts. They should just buy someone, you know, and, and maybe they'll do that. It's at that some point, but I still just a car plus self-driving is, is bad. A car on its own is is probably worse because that's that's not a forward-looking product like you like you said you know it's that's a um you know and, and if they're going to try to figure out how to make that 30 percent margin then you're, you're basically making a fifty thousand dollar car and, and and selling it for yeah so like i mean that's 
Good luck. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, the the most interesting thing I I heard about this whole thing is that they've developed a monocell battery with um, LFP lithium ion iron uh, lithium phosphate. iron phosphate. Um, so it's it's not like the lithium ions that have a heat issue sometimes, and and it's a single cell versus like what pouches or, or individual like multi cells. So um, yeah, I mean that 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 whole thing sounds very extremely dubious. First of all, lithium iron phosphate you know, is a, a a lithium ion chemistry that's been around for a long time. Uh, a lot of companies do it. Um, you know, the advantage to lithium iron phosphate compared to like what you find in most EVs today is. Um, instead of iron phosphate, they're using uh, a mix, mixes of nickel, manganese, and cobalt, uh, primarily, in some cases, aluminum. So that's but, all more expensive than iron as well. Right. Well, those are they're higher energy density than, than iron phosphate, uh, but they're also less stable. And that's where you get into the thermal runaway problems with, with those batteries. Um, iron, phosph- iron phosphate, very stable. But it's also got like 30% less energy density than those other chemistries. So you get you end up with less range. So it's cheaper and it's safe, but you don't go as far. And in fact, you know, lithium iron phosphate batteries are very popular in a lot of EVs in China because of the cost factor. You know, Chinese consumers are less concerned about having a 300 mile range. They want an EV that's that's more affordable. And that's why recently Tesla started selling a version of the Model 3 in the China market using lithium iron phosphate batteries instead of NMC batteries because they can offer it at a lower price. Consumers will buy that. And, you know, it's a lower range. It's less than 200 mile range, but, you know, they can get a lower starting price. The, you know, I, so there's that part of it. And then there's this whole monocell idea of, you know, where you make the whole thing one giant cell. It's not even clear what the hell that means. I mean, it's just, yeah, I was trying to find information on that. I was like, like even lead acid batteries have cells like that. That's you, you put multiple cells together for the the power level. You can't, you can't make cells that large enough, you know, to do a single cell for a car. It it makes no sense. Yeah. Like what's, I mean, I guess you could do an interesting shape to the cathode and the anode and, and figure it out. But like, I just you still you still have to cool the thing. You yeah, still but if do... it's like a cake, it's going to get hot in the middle, and you're not going to be yeah. able to cool at all. That, that, that's why nobody does. That's why there's a you know kind of an upper limit on how big you can make the cells, you know, because it's you know, the thermal management becomes starts to become a problem. And I think I think what it is, you know, the per, the reporter that wrote that story heard snippets of things from various sources. They're not really technically oriented and didn't really understand what they were hearing and just kind of threw it all in there without really knowing what it means or knowing what questions to ask about whether this is even plausible. And based on what's written there, I don't see anything that's actually really plausible. They should I mean, I, I, I guess maybe we could interpret it like a structural cell. Like that seems plausible. That, yeah, they're not the only that, ones doing that. That part is plausible. I mean, that's you know, if you look at Apple's products, you know, their phones and their computers, they've gone in in the direction of eliminating a lot of the packaging around the cell. That's why the all modern computers and phones have the battery sealed in. You know, instead of having a separate package around the cell, you just have the the bare cell, you know, the pouch in in the device, you know, and it's non removable. Um, you know, so that way you actually leave more room 
in there by eliminating that packaging, you leave more room inside that case for more battery, a, you know, more cell. So you have better battery life, but uh, it, you know, again, you at the size you need for a car, you can't make a cell that large, you know, you, you'd still have to have, you know, many, you know, hundreds of cells in there, you know, to, to be useful in a car. And, um, you know, that's actually something that, uh, that Musk talked about in their battery day a few months ago, uh, you know, is going to this idea of eliminating the module packaging and just having the cells in there. But, you know, again, when you, when you do that at a car scale, then you start to get problems with serviceability. If you have a bad cell in that battery pack that is structurally part of the car, without any modules, separate modules inside there. Now, if you have a bad cell in there, you can't service it. You have to throw away the whole thing. You know, whereas with with the existing designs where you have, you know, 12, 14, 20 modules in there with with cells in them, um, you can replace individual modules and service those offline without having to throw the entire battery pack away. Yeah, well, it's, it's like that sticker on some electronics, right? No user serviceable parts yeah. inside. <laughs> yeah, now the entire vehicle becomes no user serviceable parts, which yeah. would be consistent with Apple's design philosophy over the last 10 years. But. Right. <laughs> Let's move on to some listener questions. Let's start off with Leith. Uh, I think, uh, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing your name, but uh, looks, I think it's Leith Tussing, Tussing, Tussing. Um, anyway, the, the question is, uh, when do you think affordable electric sports cars will start to be made? Something in the $60,000 or less range. I own a 2014 C7 Corvette, and I've had other gas-powered sports cars most of my life. Porsche 944, Pontiac Solstice, Solstice GXP. Ooh, glutton for punishment. Uh, two Solstices. Uh, <laughs> that's, NCMI, the, that's the only place the GMT 360 and, uh, parts were good. C6 Corvette. <laughs> um, hey, uh, the Solstice was a lot of fun to drive. Not great to live with. But. It's an amazing bit of parts been engineering. It is. I, I just I just love you look at that. And they, the only thing that didn't come out of the parts bin was like the frame and the body. Yeah. Um, anyway, but I want this to be my last one, uh, presumably last uh, gas powered uh, sports car. I've looked at upgrading some of the some of the compliance EVs like the Spark, Leaf, uh, 500E, etc. to be more fun. But no one makes suspension kits for most of the EV versions. The only one with good parts options is the 500E, but after test driving it, the power is just too low. The Tesla Roadster isn't an isn't an attainable car, both from its uh, non-existing yeah, and insane price, and Porsche Taycan isn't affordable, and both have two doors too many for my tastes. There are some small cars um, coming that might be sporty if anyone supported them, but most are only in the EU, it seems, like the Honda E, the new 500, Fiat 500E, and the new Mini Cooper EV. Uh, I've seen rumors of a hybrid C8 Corvette coming, but those all sound like more uptrim options that will be well beyond $60,000. So what do you guys think? Oh, uh, see, did I get the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, it looks like the whole thing. Yep. Okay. So what do you guys think? I'll let you, I'll let you go, Rebecca. You, you are the analyst with your finger on the pulse of the public. <laughs> I think, you know, it's one of those things that, first of all, this two-door power sports car market is very small anyway. Uh, you know, in some ways, like the Lexus LC500 would be an amazing EV. 
mean, that would be a really cool thing. I mean, it's not going to be 60,000, it's 100,000. But it's just that there isn't really a market for this. And that's, to me, is the biggest challenge here. I mean, he's named some of the ones, you know, certainly the the Mini Cooper EV is a I, that idea, but there's just not a market for it, unfortunately. That to me is the number one issue. Yeah, I, I think that um, automakers are focusing on the markets where people are buying in the most volume and w- where that demand is. Eventually, there'll be some uh, EV options. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think the, the Audi. Oh, there's the Aston Martin uh, Rapide. But that yeah. again has Except four that, doors. That the, and the EV was canceled. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the Lagonda, they canceled the whole brand. They, yeah. put, they put off making the Lagonda um, an EV. But yeah, I mean, the, there's just not a market for it. Not yet. No. I, w- what about that? The Audi e-tron GT, though? Is that um, again, the same thing be... as the Taycan? Two doors, too many. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's um, slick looking, though. <laughs> you know, I, I think oh, the Fisker. What about the Fisker? Uh, that's a four door as well. Um. It, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I understand you know, the desire to want a two door, um, you know, especially a two seater. Uh, you know, I have that same desire. You know, it's why I own what I own. But um, it's, you know, the, as you said, Rebecca, the reality is that the market for two door, two seat sports cars is tiny. And when you've got an industry facing the kind of transition that's facing today, you know, over the next five to 10 years, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to justify the investment in something like that when you've got to do all this other stuff, you know, you, you've got limited resources, you've got to prioritize what you're going to do and, you know, small number of, of, you know, sports cars like that is, it's going to be really tough to make the business case for it. Well, and at that price point, because the Karma yeah. EV, right? When Karma took over, I think that's a well, two door. It's a plug-in hybrid, anyway. Oh, it's yeah. not. It's not an EV. It's not a full EV. Yeah. So, um, you know, the 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 Cooper, the Mini Cooper, mm. is actually available in the U.S. market. So that is, that is one that's available here. And I haven't driven it yet, but from from people that have driven it, you know, it it is fun to drive. Um, so that is one I would take a look at. Uh, it's a two two door. Uh, it is a four seater, but you know, those back seats are pretty useless anyway. So, uh, it's, you know, I would take a look at that one. Um, you know, I think that if we look out a few years, you know, with the transition to a lot of companies using some form of skateboard chassis, um, I think we actually will see some, you know, some two door or two seaters start to come back because, you know, once you've got that basic platform in place, it becomes easier to drop different top hats on it. And so I think we could start to see some, you know, something more sporty um, come back, you know, uh, on some of these platforms uh, in the next, you know, in the next five to 10 years, but it's going to be a few years out. You know, I I wouldn't be surprised to see perhaps, you know, uh, Audi, you know, maybe come back with a new generation TT that's electric, you know, uh, you know, a TT e-tron. Uh, you know, something like that could become a reality and it could be in that sub $60,000 price range. You know, the, the Corvette, um, I don't think you're ever going to see the hybrid Corvette. I, you know, GM has abandoned hybrids. They've, 
Mark Royce and Mary Barr have made it pretty clear they're not doing any more hybrids. It's all EV going forward. So there will be, I believe there will be an electric Corvette, an electric C8 in the next three years. Um, you know, we may even see, you know, the first hints of it uh, coming next, coming up in 2021. Um, you know, as, as some of these vehicles start to hit higher volumes over the next few years, I think we'll start to see the aftermarket coming in and, you know, creating the kind of stuff, the parts needed, you know, like SEMA, um, you know, I've heard, um, what's his name? John, I uh, can't think of his last name now, like, the guy from SEMA, he's like the VP of SEMA. He's talked about this a lot. You know, I think we're, we're going to start seeing a lot more uh, parts availability, you know, to do interesting things with EVs in the next Raniac? few years. Okay. Yeah, we're, we, that's it. Yeah, John Waraniak. Um yeah, you know, he's talked about this. I think I think we will see a, a lot more interesting stuff coming and we'll see some dedicated uh, EVs. And I wouldn't, you know, one you know, one company that I would keep an eye on is Mazda. You know, mm. at some point, I would not be surprised to see them create uh, an electric uh, Miata, you know, um, you know, maybe, you know, by the 2025 time frame. Um, well, I think, too, if you're looking to spend 60 grand, you have the opportunity to get a classic car retrofitted with an EV powertrain. That's that's actually probably your best bet right now is to do a, an electric resto mod. Yeah. But didn't um, he say you, that you, he looked into that? Because uh, find... no, uh, let's see. I mean, he said, he mentions well, that he, he, he's looking he, at suspension kit. Yeah, he was looking at stuff for drive, existing right. EVs to okay. to make them to upgrade yeah. them. So there's that. But I think I think the electric the electric resto mod market might actually be. <laughs> the better near term choice because um, there's, there's some interesting kits out there. And in fact, you know, one of the things that GM has shown, um, you know, the first last year at SEMA and then, you know, and the, the virtual SEMA this year is they are developing um, a, uh, an e-crate motor system uh, using oh, the, right. uh, the motor and the, uh, the power electronics and the batteries from the bolt, from the Chevy bolt. Um, Last year they showed it. They showed a an old K5 Blazer or a K10 Blazer um, with this system in there. Um, you know, putting a bolt battery in the in the back of it and um, a couple of bolt motors on you know in there. Um, and that the, what they what they've developed is a kit uh, where there's an adapter um, that goes from the bolt the output of the bolt motor right into you know a turbo hydromatic four speed you know four speed automatic. Yeah, you know, so you can basically bolt it up. It, this this is like the the next generation of the classic LS crate motor, you know, except it's electric. You know, so you just drop it in, bolt it right up to a GM automatic transmission. It's got the same bolt pattern and everything, and things like that. You're going to start seeing more kits like that coming from the performance parts divisions of various automakers. I wouldn't be surprised to see Ford Performance take something. Mm. You know, I mean, they they did that Mach E fourteen hundred where they actually stacked seven Mach E engines. Or motors, you know, uh, or they've got three, three in the front, four in the back stacked together. Um, and, you know, because what part of the reason they built that car was to experiment with different configurations. They've got it set up so they can run different combinations of the motors. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Ford Performance offer a kit based on the Mach-E uh, motors and electronics, you know, in the next couple of years. And I think other manufacturers, Mopar, uh, I would guess at some point is going to do that uh, as well. You know, once once they've concluded their 
their merger with PSA and have some electric stuff to, to work with, uh, I would be surprised if they don't offer something. So it it's now is not the right time, but it, it is coming. But you know, if you, if you want something right now, there are, you know, there are some small companies out there doing some, some interesting stuff, you know, um, with, uh, you know, putting together kits for various companies, uh, or very, you know, for various vehicles that, uh, that you can do. So it just has yeah. to be patient. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or get a, you know, get an electric Porsche from, uh, electric bug. Maybe. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. There, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are some, you know, 911s, old 911s and Beatles are, you know, ones that there've been a lot of conversions done of those. Oh, they've been, yeah. I mean, they've been EV swap for decades. Yeah. yeah. What is that one company that's doing, uh, that d- does the bus, uh, Volkswagen had a thing on it last year and they were doing um old vintage bus retail yeah, yeah, VW's done a couple of yeah yeah might vintage be electric micro bus concepts uh that they've they, electrified they, yeah so th- i mean they're out there yeah just, um i mean uh, i will send money. Uh, i will include <laughs> uh, a link in the um uh in the show notes to a segment i did on the tech guy show a couple of months ago on uh electric crate motor conversions um, with, uh, with the GM stuff in there and, and classics. Yeah, that's it. That's the company. Yeah, classics. I wrote about it on JD power. Yeah. They've got, they've got a few different kits, you know, they do conversions of a bunch of different vehicles. So, you know, take a look at e-classics, you know, they might have something that, yeah, they're not your needs. Some stuff isn't in the U S but I would definitely contact them. Yep. We can link to the article that I wrote on uh, JD power. We will definitely do that. Okay. All right. So next up. D. Matthias, I started listening to Will Bearings a couple of months ago on the recommendation of the Accidental Podca- Accidental Tech Podcast hosts. That's our, uh, our friend Casey Thanks, List there. Casey. Uh, I'm a tech nerd who enjoys driving and knows a lot about trains and buses, but not cars. I love your show because it's a- approachable to a newbie like me, but still very informative. I've listened through the back catalog back to tw- back to November 2019 so far because it's something calming to listen to when I'm stressed. We are calming. Oh Jesus! Soothing radio. Well, you, you must have I've some crazy stress of listening to Dan makes, calms you down. Yeah. Um, anyway, until a few months ago, I was a city bus driver for nine years with UMass Transit in Amherst, Massachusetts. <sighs> Um, a dream of buying an old bus, ideally an RTS or rear engine bluebird and converting it to a camper. I already miss driving a full size bus, especially with wow. the, uh, the snow driving approaching, uh, a Gillig bus is a blast to drive in a good blizzard. I want to know if you can like, so uh, those are kind of long and the engines in the back, but I bet with enough practice, you could, you could get it to go sideways around corners, like, like rally drifting and just know exactly how much opposite lock to put in to just so you're like and and amherst there's enough out there that you know it's not like a cow town you're gonna hit stuff if you're not careful so it's a little bit of a thrill yeah so anyway i I want to drift this one up i'm I'm curious what sorts of cars you guys would recommend i look at in the used market in a few years when my 27 or 2007 manual impreza dies but uh, that would be an even longer email. So I'll save that for another time. Thanks for the great show. So what, what That's would you awesome. guys recommend as a replacement for his to the, for the 2007 manual Impreza? Honda civic annual. I, that's, that's hard to, hard to argue with. That's, that's, good. <laughs> that's my first thought. Yeah. No, you know, uh, civic, you know, civic hatchback, uh, sport, uh, or, uh, you know, the, the NSI coupe uh, would be good. But, you know, I think if you're replacing an Impreza, you know, well, assuming that it's like an Impreza wagon as opposed to a sedan, mm-hmm. 
mm. um, you know, then uh, then the, the Civic hatchback uh, sport would be an excellent choice with the, the 1.5 liter turbo, the uh, and the manual transmission, you know, very affordable, uh, fuel efficient and, you know, I think reliable and should be a, and it's a hoot to drive. Yeah, but also like this is I mean, the Civic is just like it's it's, it's a great choice. But I, I feel like the Subaru is such a part of that Western mass kind of culture. I mean, you're just south of Vermont and we all know about Subarus in Vermont. So, <laughs> I, I, mean, well, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, you know, a Subaru uh, to replace the Subaru would be yourself you know, a the WRX. Yeah, I mean, he's all wheel drive, <laughs> right? Yeah. A WRX or an STI. Mm, yeah. There you go. Upgrade a little bit. Live a I little. Can get behind <laughs> that. <laughs> you won't be much behind it if it's an STI, really. It's true. I mean, you'll only be behind it. <laughs> I screwed that up. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say, you know, something like a GTI, too. Like, just thinking um, along the lines of, of what you've already got, if that's what you like. Or you can take a, a total left turn. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with a Crosstrek or WRX or a GTI, the Civic, pretty much anything in that segment is going to be amusing but those are the those are the top ones i and i want to hear more about the converting like the rear engine bluebird into a camper because i do i do watch a lot of like the you know tiny house conversion hgtv <laughs> shows bizarre builds that, and stuff that, like that That would be a that would be a fantastic resto mod that would be I, amazing I, I would love to see uh d you know get a bluebird and and uh drop a couple of electric motors in there in the back yeah and, so, fun. I mean, uh, have you get maybe you guys haven't seen it. There's a YouTube channel. Uh, from, I don't remember the guy's name, but it's called Bus Grease Monkey. <laughs> and so it, it focuses on older buses like the older flexibles and um, the, the GMCs that had the two stroke Detroit diesel in them. Um, but. I mean, those those two stroke Detroit's were, you know, 671s and 871s and whatever were, were in so many things like city buses, school buses, Greyhounds from like the late 40s all the way up to, I don't know when they stopped making them. But uh, there's a lot of camper conversions or, or, you know, mobile home conversions with those that are already out there. And they're a lot more labor intensive, I think, because they're just they're older. So the the engines are you know, older technology, still fascinating though. You know, when you think it's a two stroke diesel with a blower and uh, some of them are turbocharged and stuff. So it's really, it's just fascinating to watch how he resurrects these, these things. Um, you know, what I would love to see is somebody take um, an old GMC motor home. Those things were, are still yeah. like some of the coolest motor homes. You know what I'm talking about? Don't you Rebecca? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I don't. What is this? Oh, look, look up GMC motor home. There's a okay. whole enthusiast community around those because basically what they did was um, they <gasps> took the Toronado front wheel oh, drive. Oh my gosh, what a riot! Yeah, yeah. so that has that has the, the Oldsmobile 425 uh, V8 and the the Toronado. Uh, it's like TH400. So it's a front wheel drive rig from the the Toronado stuck in there, and then it's just got like a, a dead axle in the back. Um, and yeah, they're really really popular. And I saw one around here the other day, just sort of languishing on someone's property. I was going to go back with the zoom lens and take pictures. These are amazing. And you know, Haggerty yeah. actually has a a, an, a story about them. So maybe somebody yeah, I mean, from Haggerty can talk about it. Oh, people yeah, they love were, them. They were really cool. You know, they built them for about ten twelve years, I think. Um, <clears throat> but I'd love to see somebody do an electric conversion on one of those. <gasps> and and the thing is, you know, 
because the electric motor is so small, you could make that rear wheel drive. You could because it's it's a dual rear axle. Um, so you could put an electric one electric motor on each of the rear axles, or you could keep it front wheel drive. You know because it's got that same that same bolt pattern. You know for the for the V8. You know get that get that GM E crate motor um, and hook it right up there in the front. But you know I would say put put one put an electric motor on each of the rear axles, make it you know dual rear wheel drive. That that would be a hoot. How many? T- it says so. So on Wikipedia, for what that's worth, it says five years, like 1973, 1978. Five? Seemed like it was longer yeah. than that, but yeah. Golly, I mean, that's and amazing. Even, yeah. And I mean, it was a design that you know, even now, almost fifty years later, still looks contemporary. NASA used them. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they used them to transport uh, the astronauts out to the out to the launch pad. <laughs> what a riot! In fact, I think I think they still do. I think. I think they still use one. I think they still have a couple of them that they use for transporting uh, the astronauts out to the launch site. Oh That's my funny. gosh. I love them. They're so seventies. Yeah. yeah. Like everything cool. good in the seventies. I mean, if you to want to go into and, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's all kinds of, if you want to get into motorhomes, there's all kinds of weird stuff out there. there was, oh my um, gosh. It's awesome. Forget okay. The little, all right. Like, we digress. Little we digress. Was like, yeah. uh, Sorry. Another I'm one's going to ramble. Yakov Nimoy. We haven't, we haven't heard from Yakov in a few months. Um, so uh, Dan's skepticism about the company culture at Aurora and Sam's comments about uh, that got me thinking to share a bit of my own perspective from the Bay Area tech viewpoint. Like Sam said, culture inside an organization really comes down from everyone modeling their leaders' behaviors and reinforcing it as a default way to make decisions without having to run everything up the chain. It's especially reassuring to hear that Aurora practices what they preach, and I can say the same about other organizations here that I've been uh, seeing the inside of. When the bosses demonstrate they care about individual people and don't like and don't like jerks, you find the jerks don't gain traction and leave. Likewise, when a boss pushes to break up a meeting focused a meeting focused culture in favor of solid work, but then schedules ten hours of back to back meetings, the company <laughs> culture is a meeting culture. It's really as simple as that. Uh, oops, where to go? Sorry, scroll down. I, I, I hit uh, hit the down button here and. Skip one factor Hope, that gets uh, got it. Yeah. Ho- hopefully uh, we don't need to comment. Uh, oh, sorry. One factor that gets overlooked, though, is the minority of culture. Um, these are the folks who are capable of and smart and come to an organization like Uber, Google or Facebook to surround themselves and work with other people in the top of their fields. The problem rises when rises when these folks find out that they have values different than the prevailing culture, but find themselves uh, trapped in their jobs for various reasons. Often these folks come from a minority background or are less privileged in society than the leaders at the top of that org. I would bet that there are at least a hundred of these folks inside Uber ATG, and they will hopefully find working for Aurora a major relief. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've heard, um, I heard an interview uh, last week on um, automotive News's uh, shift podcast with, uh, with Chris Ermson and, you know, one of the things as they've been doing this deal is they've been essentially going through and uh, interviewing all the ATG staff and, and, you know, making offers to the ones they want to keep. So I think I think that they're they're going to sounds like they're doing they're going to be doing some filtering out of the, the ones that aren't going to fit with the the Aurora culture. Um, anyway, hopefully we don't need to comment too much on the news that's out there that demonstrates demonstrates major mismatches of culture inside the the big fang, uh, which is Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, and also the other players here. Um, 
Moreover, leaders who fully understand culture and enforce, let's call them good values in their orgs, understand these dynamics too. The leaders of Aurora must have been aware of this when striking a deal. I would wager further that they are deliberately figuring out uh, how to keep the folks who will fit well in a, with Aurora coming from ATG. And that's, I think that's exactly what they're doing. Um, finally, to really paint a picture, I found culture may be the hardest part of interviewing when looking for work. In my line of work, web and cloud infrastructure, technology comes and goes, so it rarely matters what tech stack the company uses. Instead, folks like us, uh, like us who prefer to work on the, on the line outside management are forced to glean what bo both what is the company culture and how well do they adhere to their stated culture. As the saying goes, to thine own self be true. Rebecca, you were indeed missed uh, last week. Um, as uh, as I would have loved to hear if you had anything to add on culture in the automotive industry from your perspective. And I'd, I'd love to hear that too. You know, I mean, obviously you have a very different perspective, you know, as a woman than, than mm -hmm. I do. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the things, certainly culture does start at the top for sure. If you, you know, as he says, if if you say we want to be flexible, we want to be nimble, we want to be responsive and here's 10 hours of meetings with which to do that, <laughs> you're not going to get anything done. And I think that we certainly, you know, the, I, I've worked for all different size companies. And so but it doesn't seem to really matter. You're still impacted by people at the top. If you are you know, if, if you're tasked with being creative, with being, uh, uh, you know, forward thinking, and then you're given a PowerPoint presentation that is an hour long meeting uh, from somebody who isn't particularly nimble, isn't particularly creative thinking, you're just going to engender frustration amongst those people. And I certainly have seen it. You know, my boss at Kelly Blue Book was one of the most creative people that I've had the really true privilege of working with. And he absolutely thrived under one style of management. And then when a new new set of executives came in, really had a tough time with it. And for the most part, everyone that I've worked with there is gone now for from a variety of, of ways. Uh, so I do think the other thing that, and I've said this before, but I, I firmly believe it, we are not accounting for the changes in demographics as baby boomers retire or they hang on and they're working into their, you know, 70s in some cases, you still have to have a culture that evolves, that is open to evolving, that adopts new technology, that looks at things like Slack, like that we even use here. You know, I started using Slack in 2013 back in Saudi Arabia. And when I came back to the States, certainly at, at Kelly Blue Book and Cox Automotive, nobody had ever heard of it. And Tableau, the same thing. I started using Tableau in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. So I think that it's not just, you know, you, you've got to be willing to adopt these cultures. You have to be willing to look at technology as opportunities rather than threats. And then demographically, when you hire a 24, 25 year old fresh out of college, they are probably exposed to the latest technology and they expect there to be a nimbleness to a culture that, again, just has to start 
from the top. It has to be authentic. Also, you have to have that feeling that the cultural, uh, the tasks that you're given and, and the and the steering, the, the mission is something that is lived day to day and not just pulled out for for staff meetings or for you know shareholder meetings, even worse. So yeah, I think that's one yeah. of the one of the biggest uh issues is the mismatch between stated values and, and actions. And, uh, a lot of companies, I mean, I'm, I'm in Boston. I'm about as far as you can get from Silicon Valley, but a lot of, a lot of the companies I've worked for have been led by dudes and white guys. And that's a problem. That's a huge blind spot. You need more women. You need more people of color. You need those, those voices for diversity because, uh, you need diverse teams to develop products and imagine the uh, the sort of the consequences of what you're developing. Mm. Uh, you know, like as a as a middle class white guy, I don't have those experiences of uh, somebody who didn't grow up in in a sort of relatively privileged, safe environment. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it, well, it's diversity and, and, of thought and experience, and it's not identity politics. It is. It is no, because these people are bringing something different to the table. But I will say that my boss at Kelly Blue Book was a white guy, but he just had incredible diversity. He had the ability to be very open minded to yeah. diversity of thought and experience. And the, and the team I worked with was was culturally and culturally diverse and experience diverse, although the management was not particularly, the senior level management was not particularly. But you diverse. have to be receptive to that input. And I like, so like Uber, as an example, one of the problems with Uber was like all, all of the people who were developing and making decisions and imagining that product hadn't ever been stalked. They hadn't right. ever been, uh, <laughs> you know, minorities that get that would have the you know the drivers that not pick them up and and uh just uh, there was a lot of blind spots there that they didn't account for and you're responsible for that product right uh, and facebook especially i mean facebook started off as like a version of hot or not like it's yeah, yeah. just <laughs> and it's just like there's no consideration given to the the nefarious uses of the tool that you're building and you build this powerful tool and it gets to scale and then you, you can't put that genie back in the bottle so no, and you can't be naive you can't you yeah. cannot with technology you cannot be naive to how people are, are going to use this and who is going to use it and, and who is going to use it and how they're going to use it and those safeguards those assumptions, you know, I mean, the internet is really, it is, it's a beast of, of, but there were no safeguards on it when, as it grew and developed and, you know, but, but again, if we think about company culture, it, it is something that I think is controllable, but it has to be controlled uh, from both the top down, but also by hiring people that will buy into that yeah. culture and buy into the idea that diversity of thought is highly valued and actually creates a better product in the end. Yeah. You want people to challenge. So this is all to say, I, I, I agree completely with Yaakov is, is you, you want to hire people that are, are better than you, that are going to challenge you, that are going to tell you that you're wrong. You want to listen to them. 
And that's the uh, most important part is not just hiring those people, but actually listening to what they say. Yeah. Um, And, and you do, you, you have to, you have to live your values. And if you don't, then they're just, it's an empty mission statement on the wall. And there's a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whatever you do, you don't want, you know, a bunch of yes men around you. Yeah. That's right. You, you want to, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room because then you're in a lot of trouble. (laughs) What are you saying? (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's true. It's yeah. Um, so we, we can, we, we can have a whole conversation. We can, we can. Organizational structures. (laughs) Um, so let's move on to the next question. All right. So the, the last, the last two questions are both related to um, the Mustang Mach-E um, from uh, Adam Jekowenko. Uh, great discussion on the Mach-E. One thing I noticed on some of the reviews is that depending on your height, size, and seating position, your knee could hit the bottom corner of the screen for both the driver and the passenger. I wonder if Sam experienced anything like this. And also, um, appear, it appears that there's nowhere to rest your right knee when driving. So I'm wondering if that could potentially have some impact on longer drives. Um, so we've we've talked about this, you know, in with in the context of some other vehicles, uh, particularly for Rebecca, because mm-hmm. um, she is not quite as tall as I am. Um, <laughs> and well, and you know, similarly, you know, if you follow uh, Jill Simonillo. Um, on Twitter or on Instagram or, uh, you know, wherever else she is, you know, she's also uh, short. I think she's like 4'11". Yeah. And, you know, so ergonomics, you know, when when you are at any, um, actually not, I wouldn't even, I was going to say at any extreme, you know, either very tall or very short, but actually it's not even that, you know, because regardless of your height, people have different proportions, you know, different proportions of leg right. length to torso length, uh, arm length to leg length, and you know, all this. So everybody fits in these vehicles differently. Um, so to, to answer the, the first part of the question there, you know, I did not, you know, in the two hours I had with the Maki have any issues with my knee hitting the, the bottom corner of the screen. But, um, you know, I think when I get a chance to spend more time with it, that's something I will take a look for. Um, you know, it, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't bother me given my particular proportions, but for anybody else, you know, and you know, as I said, you know, Rebecca, you've talked about this before on some of the vehicles that you've driven. Right. Um, you know, it, it's every vehicle is different. Every individual driver is different. And there is no universal right answer. Well, I had a funny experience with the Chevy Suburban, uh, the diesel that I had recently. And every time I got out, I didn't even realize it, but something would ding. I I mean, as I was getting out, something would ding. I'm like, what is that? And I and one time I came back to the car. Fortunately, I hadn't been gone very long, but the lights were still on. And I thought I have auto headlamps. Why are those things still on? And it turns out that every time I got out of that car and the ding would go, I would actually be inadvertently hitting the button for the lights, which is on the lower left hand side with my knee and just moving it over away from auto and into like, um, like daytime, not uh, the the manual, manual, right. Whatever it was. Unfortunately, again, it wasn't the full blown, but so that ding was telling me that I had, turn the lights that the lights were actually on and I didn't realize it. So, you know, that was just a kind of a funny thing that because I sit just close enough that as I'm sliding out, I hit that, I hit the light 
adjustment thing on it. I, I think I talked a little bit about the Mazda CX-9 where I just could not find a comfortable seating position because the angle of the windshield was so dramatic that I'm sitting like so close. The same thing with the Mazda Miata. The Mazda Miata issue though was because it's a manual and I want to be able to get the clutch all the way down and not do a lot of tow driving. You know, there was um, recently I heard an interview with a female race car driver. Uh, she's uh, based in Europe, but she had to get a lot of stuff custom made because she's very tiny. And she said, I couldn't get my entire foot on the brake or the accelerator. She said I was, she was doing a lot of tow driving. So it all depends on your ergonomics. Dan, uh, Sam, you're absolutely right. When we talk about, you know, you said you've had a longer torso. I have a really short torso where, how you sit, where you sit. It's one of the reasons why I love uh, automatic, I love uh, electric seats because you can get those kinds of slight adjustments. The Miata has a manual seat. And so it's kind of like it, it moves, I think maybe half an inch. Notches. Yeah, the notches, yeah. right. And it's just like the, the one that's just a little bit further back than I want it. The other one's a little bit further than I want. It. <laughs> it's sort of like, I want something in, in between. So ergonomics, it's, it's another reason why it's so critical to test drive this vehicle, to test drive a car that you are thinking of buying because you have to make sure that you can be comfortable, safe, have good control. You know, I've been on um, tracks before where I may not be, I'm not coming to a, a, I can't stop the car as quickly as I should be able to. And it's actually because I'm not sitting close enough. I've got to be able to get the full, you know, you've got, you want that full extension and be able to pound hard enough on that brake pedal in order to stop the car. So there's all these kind of safety features, visibility is an issue. Ergonomics is a key, the key thing when purchasing a vehicle. And that unfortunately is confined to your body in particular. That's my rant on ergonomics. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, I find that uh, in a, like if I wear my, my heaviest winter boots, um, I wind up hitting the fuel release button at the Grand Cherokee. <laughs> <laughs> just it's it, so it, like it happens. Yes, ergonomics are um, gonna gonna depend on on you and and the car. So you're gonna have you're just gonna have to add them. You're just gonna have to go drive the Maki. You have to go drive yeah. it. Well, we're, we're, I think we're gonna have to. I'll have to put uh, make a note that uh, one of these days we've got to do a segment just on how to test drive a car. Uh, yes. You know, before yeah. you buy. You know, and I think it is crucially important that whatever you're considering buying, you need to go actually sit in it, get in and out of it repeatedly, you know, drive it, you know, don't ever, ever, ever buy a car without having driven it first, you know, for like as long as possible. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll, we'll come back to that topic uh, on a future show. <clears throat> anyway, final question for this week. I've been listening to this is from Charles Painter. I've been listening to Shell for a while and have many questions, but we'll start with just one main question on EVs. I've toyed with the idea of getting an EV, but I don't want to drive a laptop on wheels. Even the new Mustang Mach-E <laughs> um, looks like nothing but some laptop computer inside with that large touchscreen. Gee, can you play Angry Birds on it? Uh, and, no, no games. Um, <laughs> I like that question. You, if, no, you, if you want to do that, you have to get, like, buy fart a Tesla. Noises and, yeah. um, the closest I've seen to a car that is an EV is the Nissan Leaf. It's bad enough that more and more cars are using digital speedometers, but uh, to put just about all of the car's controls on a large touchscreen is not driving. 
I want the car to look like a car on the inside before I would ever buy it. I've heard, uh, I haven't heard any comments from the group on this. Um, oh, I, <laughs> I guess you haven't, haven't been paying enough attention. Uh, say, wait a minute. <laughs> anyway. I thought you um, said you were listening. As, as Rebecca has <laughs> said, if you, want to, if you want EVs to take hold, there has to be the driving experience. Um, oh, and by the way, I've decided that if they removed the word intuitive from the English language, there wouldn't be much said on the show. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm, I, I, Why are okay. you so angry, Charles? <laughs> <laughs> intuitive is a good word. It's a good, it's a good, I mean, do you want us to start saying crap like falls easily to hand? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, uh, I think you should check out the Chevy Bolt. First of all, the, I love the leaf. Um, the Bolt is another pretty regular car that car -like happens car. to be an ev yeah um but i i don't disagree uh, and then we've talked about that with the the interfaces where the screens are there because they're kind of a new cool looking thing but also because for a lot of ev upstarts it's so much cheaper than switch gear um which is sort of one of the hidden ways where they've they've sold you on one thing while they save money on the other um and the, the controls, you have to be able to use major controls without looking at them. So I, I agree with all those points. I, I don't uh, I don't I don't have a, a dissent there, but definitely go check out the bolt. Yeah, I would. I mean, I think that the reality is simply that vehicles are becoming more of a technology product and the trend in technology is is towards larger screens towards more capabilities and you know unfortunately this is just we don't really have a lot of control over the the domination of technology in in everyday life anymore it is it, it's coming we just have to try and manage it yeah and you know unfortunately you know it seems increasingly to be what a lot of consumers want um yeah. even if they don't necessarily know you know what, what they should <laughs> what they should have as opposed to what they want um you know i again i agree with both of my uh friends here and and with you charles you know that you shouldn't have all those controls embedded in the touchscreens but as dan said you know engineering physical controls is costly um you know it's it adds cost to to build that stuff to develop that stuff to build it uh you're going to have more wiring more more pieces it's going to be tougher to manufacture um, than just doing it all in software. Um, but I think to do it right, you know, until we get to a point where you have vehicles that truly are self-driving, um, that's what manufacturers need to do. They need to engineer that stuff. And as much as I am not a fan of big touchscreens, I think Ford, you know, with the Mach-E, you know, they're looking at the the customer you know the, the the market that they're going after you know the, the people that really want something like a tesla you know i think that they struck about as good a balance as they could with that vehicle you know yes it has a 15 and a half inch touchscreen but um you know they they've done a good job on the on the ui with that it does have a nice big physical volume knob uh, it does keep, you know, important controls like your windshield wipers and your lights, you know, mm. as physical controls. You, you have a stock on the steering column for the wipers to control the wipers, just as you do on any other Ford vehicle. You've got the same, um, you know, physical, um, you know, knob for the lights, um, you know, and a number of other things in there are still done with 
with physical buttons and switches. Um, so I think that they have struck uh, a reasonable, if not perfect balance there. Um, but, you know, as Dan said, you know, the bolt is another uh, great option. And, you know, I think that we're going to, we're going to see more stuff as we start to see a lot more EVs come to market in the next couple of years, you're also going to see, you know, more variations and, you know, hopefully you'll find something that, um, that strikes the right balance for you. Yeah, they'll figure it out. Something that will um, be intuitive to him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I wouldn't twist the knife. And on, uh, and on that shocker. Well, hang on, hang on. We oh. have two really quick ones from Twitter. Oh, okay. Um, so Searcher on Twitter asks if the UAZ Patriot is going to go on sale in the U.S. Um, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, that's, uh, the what is that? Uh, UAZ is, is Russian, Ukrainian. Um, uh, yeah, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, uh, Russia. Yeah, Russia. Um, yep. Yeah. So no, not, we're not getting Russian vehicles here. You can probably import one if you want to work really hard on it. Um, and then what is the expected price of the electric F-150 and who are expected early adopters? That's from, uh, we have Snap. no idea what the price point is going to be. I would, I would wager that <clears throat> starting price is probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 grand. Um, and you know the market affords going after that is more uh, more commercial users you know um professional truck users as opposed to consumers although they you know they certainly won't turn away consumers who want to buy it but they're really targeting the the commercial use market with that vehicle okay all right well i think that's about it um rebecca did you have uh anything else on on your plate that we need to discuss before we let everybody go Nope, I'm good. I'm hungry, so don't mention plates again, oh. but otherwise we're good. <laughs> ham sandwich. I see a ham sandwich in your future. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Um, you, you know where to find us. We're at feedback at wheelbearings.media. We are on uh, the social medias. And thank you, everybody, for your Patreon support. And if you haven't been there yet, go to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. And have a very, very happy 2021. Adios, 2020. Yeah. <laughs> the hell out. Thanks for listening to Wheelbearings. Hey, we love to listen to our listeners, too. Drop us an email to feedback at wheelbearings.media with your thoughts, questions, or conversation starters. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media. You can also find us on Twitter at wheelbearingscast. Don't use any vowels except for the A in cast. So that's W-H-L-B-R-N-G-S cast. Thanks again. We hope to hear from you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.